0: Well, good morning. Again, thank you for joining us this morning. Uh, Most of you, I presume, are in your homes, and we're going to talk about home this morning. We're going to talk about our eternal home. We're going to talk about heaven, and we're going to talk about our longing for home uh, in the midst of trials and challenges, many of which are very real to us, visceral, felt deeply uh, right now in this time. So I want to begin by just asking, and of course it's rhetorical, you can't answer this, but how are you doing? (laughs) This is the question that I'm getting constantly, and I'm sure you are as well. How are you doing? How are you holding up? How are things going? The constant question, because we know that things are not right. We know that things are not as they are supposed to be. We're on edge, we know others are as well, and so this is the question that returns to our lips. How are you doing? how are you feeling because we care deeply about one another i've been answering this question in a few different ways the first is simply this better than i deserve i am thankful to be surrounded by family that loves me two little girls that are wild and crazy and fun and full of life a beautiful wife who's you know step by step turning our home into a a, a doomsday prepper paradise of Kombucha and gardening and all other manner of things I don't understand. But I'm also grieving. and I'm grieving with you all. I'm grieving for you all. And I get to grieve and you get to grieve because we want to be together and we want to be healthy and we don't want to, we don't want to harm businesses. And we, we care about our brothers and sisters up in the northwest corner of the state in Navajo Nation. We're all aware of what's going on. And so we grieve, we give thanks and we grieve and we long, we long for home, we long for heaven, we long for healing, we long for Jesus' help. Being in a trial of any kind, in particular a global pandemic, is disorienting, it's confusing, it wells up within us justified anxiety and fear. And maybe you were in a trial before this happened, or you've entered into one during it, on top of everything else going on. Life is that way in general. We live on this side of the fall of man into sin, and things are broken. They are not as they should be. They are beautiful, but they're beautifully broken. The unknown is scary, and so we join in the words of the apostles Jesus, where? Where is this going? Where are you going? Help us. Our souls are disturbed. And that's right where the disciples find themselves. Now in this this last section of John's gospel, Uh, before we get to the passion narrative in chapter 18, this last section, chapters 13 to 17, is known as the farewell discourse. It's a series of of statements and prayers and, and examples set by Jesus as he prepares his disciples for the difficulty and the mourning of the way of the cross. And they find themselves really disturbed. You can imagine the disciples of Jesus who have been walking with him now for three years, expecting that he would be the one, the Jewish Messiah who would come and, and overthrow the shackles of Roman oppression, who would raise up a Jewish army that would once again march like the armies of David and, and conquer the lands of ancient Palestine, rid themselves of their Roman oppressors, and now he's gathered his closest followers, his disciples, after three years, and they still don't get it. You can imagine them saying like, wait, what, what are you talking about? Farewell discourse. What do you mean you're leaving? What do you mean you have to die? These are the same feelings that we feel when we're in the midst of a trial, and really there's three main Uh, ways that this is teased out in our text. The first is with the problem of betrayal. That's really what happens in the middle of John 13. Jesus tells his closest followers, one of you is going to betray me. Can you imagine? And they're looking around. They're wondering who's it going to be. Peter seemingly sidles up to John and says, John, you know, you, you and Jesus are really close. Can you ask who's it going to be? And Jesus still keeps it cryptic. He says, the one who dips the bread in the cup. But of course, they're all at the, at, at the tail end of the Passover feast. They're all eating dinner together. Who's it going to be? What do you mean that one of the 12 is going to betray you, Jesus? And yet it's no different than what John has been showing us in his gospel throughout. Jesus does signs and wonders and preaches the good news and, and the truth. And people say, we've never heard anyone talk like this or do these things. That creates Tension and controversy with the religious leaders, which brings uh, the people once more to a choice. Is he the one? Is he the Messiah or is he not? And frequently in John's gospel, we see that people walk away, they leave, this is too hard. They're offered a place with Jesus at his table and yet they'd rather have 30 pieces of silver. Silver. So the betrayal of one has disturbed the waters. But on top of that, there's the pure fear we see expressed in Peter and Thomas, verse 36 of chapter 3 and 14, verse 5. And I, man, I just love Peter. I, we all love Peter because we can see ourselves in Peter. He is fiercely loyal to Jesus, and yet he so often gets it wrong as far as Jesus' motives and actions and the meaning of what he does and says. Thomas follows this up later with his own doubts. They both ask the same question, and it's interesting that it's in the same text, leading up to this promise of going home to the Father's house. Where are you going? Jesus, we're here. We're in Jerusalem. We should have never come back. We know you wanted to heal Lazarus and raise him from the dead, but we told you from day one it was going to be too dangerous. And now we're here, and the people want to kill you. The religious leaders are raising up a mob. They're bringing their case to Pilate. We're on edge, Lord. We never should have come. So where are you going? Peter's statement is a little bit arrogant, right? Where are you going, Jesus? Because wherever you go, I'll go. And I'll die for you. And Jesus humbles his arrogance by saying, Oh, will you? Really? Actually, you're going to deny me three times. So overcome by fear and anxiety and the pain of this trial that you will succumb to it. But don't worry, Peter. Someday you will go where I am going. You too will be crucified. And as we know, crucified upside down at his death for his Lord. Where Peter is arrogant, Thomas is, uh, you know, full of doubts. Again, he's doubting Thomas. One commentator said, if you could construe the disciples as the seven doors, Thomas would undoubtedly be grumpy. He just, you know, he's He's skeptical. And what's interesting is that Jesus doesn't chide him for his skepticism. But again, he humbles Thomas's doubt by saying, Thomas, if you had really known me, not just known things about me, not just used your eyes to see what I have done, but your heart to believe who I am, you would have known the Father. Thomas, you don't need to doubt. Even in a trial, even in a pandemic, even in whatever you're going through, you don't need to doubt. You know I am God and I keep my promises. And lastly, there's just the general confusion about the messianic kingship of Jesus. He's clearly come to fulfill the promises of the Old Testament. Like God who provided manna in the desert, he has fed the 5,000. Like God who healed his people Israel when they were sick, he's healed many sick people, those with infirmities and diseases. He's fulfilled the rules and rituals of the temple and the cleansing rites. Little by little, he's been showing, I'm the one to whom all these signs pointed. He even raised Lazarus from the dead. The, the monumental sign of the gospel of John until we get to that most monumental sign, the resurrection of the Son of God himself. How could the one who raises the dead, heals the sick, fulfills the promises... Die? How could this be the one who bends down to wash feet? It's not at all what they expect, and they're feeling deeply confused. And I just want to say this is a picture of us. This is a picture of our own human condition in its multifaceted feelings and fears when we're in the midst of trials and challenges. We're confused. we're, we're led astray. We feel like maybe if we, if we betrayed or went another way, things would go better. We try to take control into our own hands. We're full of anxiety and trepidation. Not just in a global pandemic, but as we walk through life on this journey, this side of heaven. Don't forget Martin Luther's famous saying, we are simultaneously. Eustace et peccator, justified in justified standing with God in Christ because of his finished work. But still, we we, we sin. There's a battle between the flesh and the spirit. And so on this side of heaven, these fears, these disciples, Peter, Thomas, and the rest, they're a great description of us. Our fears and failures, our needs. And yet the good news is, Jesus meets us right there, just as he did for his beloved little children. Life may be beautiful and broken. We're in the now of God's kingdom, but the not yet of Christ's return. That is true. We long for home. We long for the hope of heaven, a house, a mansion, with many rooms for comfort and security, all the things that home represents. Think about it. You go you go home and and maybe you're embraced by your mom or your dad or someone's prepared an incredible meal. You feast, there's food, there's drink, there's comfort, there's security, there's things that you know there. It feels like a place where you can rest and be who you are in so many ways. We long for that. And yet Jesus reminds us that it's only through him that we can receive that assurance. So, how do we get there? As we long, as we ask the same question of Peter and Thomas, how do we get there? Where are you going? Jesus shows us in our text three ways that he's promised to help. The first is this, and it's beautiful. He cares for their fears. I want you to see what Jesus says in in verse 14. Don't let your hearts be troubled. And again, notice how he began verse 33. Beloved children, don't let your hearts be troubled, but... Believe in me or trust in me. He cares. He brings peace. And John 14, 1 for me in my life has been a verse that I've I've memorized. And it's it's blessed me so many times in, in hard moments. Jesus knows he's going to die. He knows that until it happens, his disciples could not even possibly understand. And yet rather than beat him up and yell at him and say, you're idiots, why don't you get it? He turns his attention to their hearts, their needs. Don't let your hearts be troubled. You can trust in me. I care. When we're in the raging waters of the storm, when the sea is crashing down all around us, Jesus doesn't stand on the shore or on a hillside by the shore and say, You know what? I told you so. If you had just listened, you you wouldn't be in the storm right now, you wouldn't be in the seas. No, Jesus, Jesus is the life raft, he is the lifeboat. He himself gets in the water and swims out to save. And so it's shocking that in this last hour he would turn his focus to his disciples. In the farewell discourse, John 13 through 17, the entire attention of Jesus is on his beloved disciples. In fact, John doesn't bring in any of the other groups that he's been so used to dealing with in his gospel, the religious leaders or the crowds. It's just Jesus and his followers, who he loves, who are deeply afraid, who he longs to comfort with a hope that is greater than anything they could possibly do in their own strength or find in the world around them. At his end, he cares about their beginning. And in this way, He shows forth, He reveals to His disciples the true nature and reality of God. He is God the Son, and by the power of the Holy Spirit in Him, He reveals to them who God is. Self-sacrificial love for those who are hurting and afraid and in need if they would only just believe. The fear of the disciples is not misplaced. Same goes for you right now if you've been having ups and downs, good days and bad days. Your fear is not misplaced. Not at all. In fact, you, you, you should be grieving. Not that you might be wallowing in sadness or self-pity, but we get to feel all these things just as the disciples did in Jesus' day. They're not mocked. But instead, he gives them a better reality. He shows them a better way. He talks to them about my father's house. This is clearly, pretty much all commentators agree, a picture of heaven. What Jesus is saying is, I am going somewhere to do something to prepare a place for you so that God's presence can be with you and you can be with him in his house. Now, the other place that John speaks in this way in his gospel, and indeed throughout the scriptures, is the temple. The temple was the place of the presence of God. And the temple was the place where heaven and earth kissed. Where God came down, and heaven and earth were one unified reality because the presence of God was there making all things new. Jesus says, that's who I am. That's where I'm going. That's what I'm going to do in the midst of your fears In the midst of your anxiety, according to all your needs, he cares for their fear. Secondly, he draws them back to the basics. So, of course, we're doing the I am statements in John, and this is one of the last I am statements. How will he care for their fears? Not just by the empathy of understanding and acknowledging their felt needs, but by reminding them of this greater reality, namely that he is the I am that I am. He is God the Son. He is the fullness of God, fully God and fully man. By reminding his disciples of this fact, he raises a question. He gives us the same question in the midst of our challenges Can God do it? Even when you don't get it. Can God do it even when you don't get it? When you look at your life and when you look inside and it feels helpless and hopeless, can God do it? Is he enough? Even if you don't feel like enough, is God enough for you? It's a question that Jesus invites his disciples to ask because he is ready and willing to answer it. Again, John 14, verse 1. The answer to that question is, trust me. Believe in me. Look, you're my disciples. You know me. Remember your lives. Remember your story. Remember how I called you. The Bible says we were dead in our sin and trespasses. There was nothing we could do to save ourselves. We didn't need a little self-help. You know, we didn't need a little medicine. We didn't need a little plan. You know, follow these 12 steps and, and you'll be just fine. We needed the power of the resurrection. Jesus says, remember your story. Remember how I called you from darkness to light. Remember how I showed you how all the things in the world don't satisfy. Even the good things Can't be ultimate things. Even the good things aren't God things. You know, go and plant trees and build a home and have families and eat and drink and be merry, and that's all good. But it won't most deeply satisfy the longings of your soul for home and for heaven. It's as if Jesus says to Peter and to Thomas and to you and to me, You want to know where I'm going? Remember where we've been. Remember that I am the one who is faithful, the promise maker and the promise keeper. But in the midst of that, because it comes as a question and as a command can God do it? Trust me. John brings us back to this mechanism he's used repeated times in his gospel, wherein those who follow Jesus must choose. We must choose. So he says in verse 7, if you had known me, Thomas, will you know me? Will you really know me and trust me? They must choose, is Jesus the Messiah? Even though he's doing things so differently than they could ever begin to expect or imagine. Is he the one? Because he can't just be a good teacher. You know, he can't just be a, a nice religious guy. He has already said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's either all or nothing, and we must choose. This thing of if you had really known me is startling, because of course they knew Jesus. They had been with him for the last three years, and of course they had chosen Jesus. They had left everything. Remember those fishermen? They left their nets right where they were and followed Jesus. And yet the need to come to Christ again and again and trust and choose, and believe, and follow, and preach the gospel to ourselves, and not let the words and wisdom of the world speak truth to us instead. It's an action that we must repeat as we journey with Jesus in this Christian life. The good news is this, having cared about their fears and having called them to this personal faith, he now gives them the very strength and way to do it. He shows them how to come home. And so thirdly, he leads them through trouble. He cares for their fears. He draws them back to the basics of I am God, and he leads them through trouble. And here we can kind of break down that threefold statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus reveals three things about himself as their sovereign savior that they desperately need to hear in this time of trial. Three things that, although humbling for Peter and Thomas and the disciples to hear, bring incredible comfort and assurance. First, Jesus says, I am the way. I am the way. Not a way, not a possible way, not one of many ways. I am the way. Through me, through my person, through my perfectly keeping the law, to earn righteousness and holiness before God, through my sacrificial death on the cross as a spotless lamb, an atoning sacrifice, through my resurrection as God, as man, to be the first fruits of all resurrection that I might raise you from the dead. I'm not a way, I am the way. And you know what? That sounds kind of harsh. It does. I'm right there with you. It, this is a hard teaching. But here's what Jesus is saying. No one can save themselves. No one can save themselves. No one is righteous. No, not one. And that's not the Bible's way of beating you up and, you know, guilt and shame and you're horrible. It's the Bible's way of surgically showing you what the real issue is, what the real cancer is. It's our brokenness, our sinful nature, the fact that not only do we sin, but we are sinners. We will choose our own way even in our longing to go home, we'll make little sandcastles for ourselves. We'll try to be our own God. Jesus makes it clear no one can be a way unto themselves. No one can save themselves, no matter how hard we try. Not through education, not through money, not through drugs, not through happiness, not through any other thing or coping mechanism that we might employ. We cannot save ourselves. And that's why he says, no one comes to the Father except through me, through my life and my death and my resurrection, through my perfect sacrifice. No one comes to God except through grace. Now, if you hear that, it might sound to you like a a horrible word. Oh, I don't like that. I don't like that that, you know, removes my agency, my action, my freedom, my ability, my whatever. But Paul tells us, for those Who are called. For those who are in Christ, this is grace, this is good news, this is the gospel. Because we have been shown that we're lawbreakers, that we're sinners, that we're that we're in need of hope and helpless in our own strength and merit. And Jesus says, I'm enough. I will save you. I will bring you to God. No one comes to the Father except through grace, and I am grace for you, and enough for you to bring you to the Father. And there's plenty of room for you. This is what it means to come home to God. Not that you climb up the ladder, and work harder, and try harder, and do more. But precisely when you are found like Peter and Thomas when you are confused and angry and anxious and wondering about betrayals and is this really the Messiah? Jesus meets you there because it's not your work, it's his. It's not how religious you can be. It's his perfection that comes and brings you to the Father. Tim Keller puts it this way. I love this quote. Tim Keller says, the gospel is an exclusive truth. It's hard to hear. The truth, the way, the life. But understand this, if it is grace, it is also the most inclusive truth in the whole world. Because all are welcome. Grace means that it isn't just a select few, rich or poor, white, black, or brown, someone with a certain kind of past or not, strong or weak, who can get to God. But all can come through Christ, who although he was rich, became poor. Who is for all people, who lived a challenging past that he might put yours to rest, and in his weakness can make you strong. That is good news. Jesus is the way, he's also the truth. Jesus is the truth of our deepest needs, but also he's the truth of how deep God is willing to go to save his people. When Jesus says, I am the truth, here's what he means. I am the true revelation of who God is. I'm also the true revelation of what humanity most needs and what it means to be fully human. That's what's so beautiful about the foot washing in John chapter 13. Uh, Most Jews would have understood that this foot washing was representative of a cleansing ritual. Jesus is cleansing his people, his closest disciples. He's also, of course, doing something that was unthinkable for rabbis in the first century. If you were a rabbi, much less one that claimed to be the Messiah, you would never, ever, ever get on your knees and do the work of a servant and wash the feet of your own disciples. It was the other way around. They would wash your feet. But Jesus says, wait a minute. All the powers and principalities of the world, all the ladders of being, you know, survival of the fittest, climb to the top, king of the hill, towers of Babel, get yours, try harder, do more. I'm turning it all on its head. I'm turning all the ways and the powers of self serving, self love in the world on their head completely. And now the God man, the Son of man, will be the one who serves. The Lord will be the servant. God's people must be cleansed. We must be given away for sin and sadness and death itself to be put to death. And Jesus says, I'm the truth about that. You want to know what God is really like? Self-sacrificial love for those who don't deserve it in such a way that puts all the powers of the world on their head and tears down all of our idols. God must do it. God is the sovereign king of the universe, but he's also the one who washes and cleanses his people. And this is what it means to be human. This is what it means to walk in the truth. To love God with our heart, mind, soul, and strength, with all that we are, means that we love our neighbors, ourselves. That's why Jesus has already told his disciples, look, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. This is how the world's going to know you're my disciples. As you love each other amidst your differences with a deep love, the truth in love, it's based on me. And lastly, Jesus says, I am the life. So I am the way that you get to God, that you get home. I am the truth about what that means, and I am life everlasting. I'm the promise that you can look forward to in the midst of your pain. I'm the truth that you can cling to in the midst of your trials. I love that Jesus says, I go to prepare a place with many rooms. I've got a big family. Not just geopolitical ethnic Jews in Palestine who want to get rid of Roman oppression. But every tribe and nation and tongue and people from all across the world. People who have been in power and people who have been oppressed. People who have been rich and poor. People who have been all kinds of people. They all need the same thing. They all need my life. They all need the cross. They all need the power of the resurrection. Jesus says, my house has many rooms. A lot of commentators would take this in sort of a a quantitative sense. Again, all people groups. There will be room for all sorts of people, all ethnicities of God's people in heaven. In fact, we know that Jesus will not come again until the gospel is gone to the very ends of the earth and everyone is heard. But there's another meaning here, I think, that's really important. And as John often does, he plays the two meanings off of each other. Not only are there many rooms and much room for all kinds of people, and not only will heaven be a place of great justice and racial reconciliation forever... But it's also true in a qualitative sense that there's room for all of you. There's room for all the broken people in the world that God wants to make beautiful through the renewal of all things. And there's room for all of your broken parts. So again, all of your life, all of your past, anywhere there's wounds or hurt or guilt or shame or pride or anger or fear, or any of those things, there's room for all of you because Christ is enough. You don't get there by being enough or dealing with all of you. You get there because Christ has already dealt with all of you on the cross and is strong enough to save. So I just want to encourage us that that there is room. The life of Jesus and the life that he goes to prepare for you in heaven a home, it's for everyone, for the whole world who will believe And it's for all of you as you believe. What's so amazing about this text is that Jesus himself is about to walk in a certain way, the way of death. The way will go the way of death. The truth itself will hear lies spewed in his face as he is struck and spat upon. And the life will be snuffed out so that we might have new life forever. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we know nothing but the cross of Christ. To some who are religious, this is a stumbling block. And to others, it seems like craziness. But we know it is the very truth and life and power of God. The way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is rich and generous. He goes to prepare a place for all of those who would trust in him as the way, as the truth of what they need and what it means to be alive and who God most really is and life everlasting. Let's pray. Lord, we do long for home. Everything we're going through right now does make us long for you and for heaven. We know that we're better than we deserve, but we do grieve. And so, Jesus, I am so thankful in our fears, just like those early disciples, betrayal and confusion and anxiety, and Peter and Thomas, and where are you going? In all of our where are you goings, you care for us. You don't mock our fears, but you meet us in them. You show us that you are the place, the new temple, where earth and heaven will kiss. You draw us up out of ourselves and navel-gazing back to the truth that you are. You are, I am, and you can do it. Lord, would you help us to choose? Because we really want to know you. We want to walk this journey, this life, wrestling, putting our sin to death, and being more and more transformed, Jesus, into your likeness by grace, because we want to know you. Lord, I'm so thankful that you lead us through the trouble. That you haven't just given us a map or said, try harder. But you are the way. You are the way who makes a way. Not by our works, but by your finished work. Life, death, and resurrection. You are the truth. And you speak the better word to us. Lord, as we look in the mirror, as we look to our feelings or our bank account, there's a million things saying, this is what's true about you. But Jesus, we trust you. You get the last and final word. You are the truth. And you prove it in all you have done, in all of your promises. And you are the life. Not just for every kind of person on this earth, which is amazing, but for everything going on inside of us. For our inner Peter, inner Thomas, inner Judas, inner John, inner Andrew, Inner all of those things that swirl about seemingly on a daily basis. There is room. You are making room for all of us. You will make all things new. So, Lord, as you have loved us, help us to love one another. In a homesick world, in a homesick city like Santa Fe, longing for home, as all the, the great things of our city are kind of ripped out from under us during this time, we long for home. Lord, help us, your church, your people, to be to be home by loving one another deeply as you have loved us. You are the way and the truth and the life. Thank you that we can come to the Father by grace, through faith, for free, forever, through you. Amen.